Hello and welcome to this very special live edition of the Penguin Podcast. I'm Kirsty Lang and I'm delighted to be joined by our guest who just over 20 years ago burst onto the international literary scene with her novel The God of Small Things. It won a booker and was one of Time magazine's books of the year and sold literally millions and millions of copies. Since then, Arundhati Roy has written non-fiction books and essays on contemporary politics, culture, human rights, and environmental issues. And she has now returned to fiction after 20 years with her second novel, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Arundhati Roy, welcome. Thank you. And for those of you who don't know, on the Penguin podcast, we ask our guests to bring along a number of objects that have influenced or inspired their writing. But before we get to those, I want to ask you a, a broader question, Arundhati. For the past 20 years, your writing has been confined to nonfiction, to politics, to essays, and so on. How did it feel returning to writing fiction? Was it liberating? Yes, it was, except that, you know, the fiction sort of began to build up over at least 10 years. Uh, so it wasn't that I suddenly dropped the nonfiction and liberated myself. The essays are like arguments, really urgent interventions in a situation closing down. The novels are like universes, so these layers began to build up in me, you know, things which were understandings which were, were not possible in anything else except a novel. Nothing else could do it, you know? So for me, uh, that is the most beautiful thing about a novel. I was trying to think of parallels between you and other novelists. Who else has managed to sort of make these, these transitions from fiction to non-fiction and at the same time be a very political writer? And I thought of George Orwell. Um, and do, I mean, do you see yourself in that vein? It's a little difficult for me to think of myself as George. All right. <laughs> but, but do you see yourself as I, a political writer? You know, honestly, it's not that I planned my life. It's not that I decided that this is going to be the way I, my career will be. So when I wrote The God of Small Things, I mean, how would I have known, you know, what happened? And then uh, because I, I was the person I was in 97 when a new government came to power, did the nuclear tests, and I, I wrote an essay called The End of Imagination, and that set me off on a path which... Every time I would write one of those essays, I would swear to myself I'm not doing it again because I would get into so much trouble, you know? Uh, so it, it was 20 years, and, and right now um, we just collected the essays, and they're going to be published next year. It's a thousand pages called My Seditious Heart, essays that were never meant to be written, you know? So it was not planned, and then... I didn't know whether I would write another work of fiction. I'm someone who, who uh, waits for, for things to come to me. I don't pursue them as a career. So the characters just pop into your head when you're writing they, fiction? They sort of uh, don't pop in. They kind of pass by and you exchange glances and then they come back and then they visit and then they 
stay longer, and then they move in. <laughs> well, we're going to get on to that in a moment, some of the characters that moved into your head. Uh, but first, uh, and this is going to be a really tricky question, because I'm going to ask you to give a synopsis of the book, and it's difficult because this is a vast kaleidoscope of a book with a, with a huge cast of characters, but this book is as diverse as India is diverse. There are many, many stories in it, aren't there? I, I won't give you a synopsis, but I can try and say what I tried to do. When I started to think of fiction again, I realized that I would be completely suffocated and not liberated by it if I thought of a novel as, you know, there will be these characters and there may be a sort of background against which their lives are played out through which you might understand something. To me, the idea was, how can you blow the novel open as a form, you know? Can you think of a story, not the setting, but can you think of a story as you might think of a city? Yeah, I, I actually studied architecture and urban planning and cities, and the way you think of cities is very important to me. So can it be something that a reader might have to live inside, get lost, go down the small lanes, because you can't learn about a city but just driving down the highway. To me, that was what I tried to do. I, I think that's an excellent description. And now we're going to meet one of the characters who lives in your literary city. Uh, he's a young boy called Aftab, who later becomes Anjum, but we'll, we'll tell you about that in a moment. And he is admiring a woman who lives in his local neighborhood. So Aftab is... Uh is born in the early 50s in the old city of Delhi to a Shia Muslim family who claims descent from Genghis Khan, the Mongol emperor. He sees a woman from, from the balcony of his house and uh, he begins to follow her. And whatever she was, Aftab wanted to be her. He wanted to be her even more than he wanted to be Borte Khatun. This is the, the wife of Genghis Khan, whose father is reading to him about. Like her, he wanted to shimmer past the meat shops where skinned carcasses of whole goats hung down like great walls of meat. He wanted to simper past the new lifestyle men's hairdressing salon where Ilyas the barber cut Liakat the lean young butcher's hair and shined it up with brilled cream. He wanted to put out a hand with painted nails and a wrist full of bangles and delicately lift the gill of a fish to see how fresh it was before bargaining down the price. He wanted to lift his salwar just a little as he stepped over a puddle, just enough to show off his silver anklets. It was not Aftab's girl part that was an appendage. He began to divide his time between his music classes and hanging around outside the blue doorway of the house in Gali, Dakota, where the tall woman lived. He learned that her name was Bombay Silk and that there were seven others like her, Bulbul, Razia, Hira, Baby, Nimmo, Mary, and Gudia, who lived together in the Haveli with the blue doorway and that they had an ustad, a guru, called Kulsumbi, older than the rest of them, who was the head of the household. 
After I've learned their Haveli was called the Khabgah, the House of Dreams. At first, he was shooed away because everybody, including the residents of the Khabgah, knew Mulakat Ali, that's uh, Aftab's father, and did not want to get on the wrong side of him. But regardless of what admonition and punishment awaited him, Aftab would return to his post stubbornly day after day. It was the only place in his world where he felt the air made way for him. When he arrived, it seemed to shift, to slide over like a school friend, making room for him on a classroom bench. Over a period of a few months, by running errands, carrying their bags and musical instruments when the residents went on their city rounds, by massaging their tired feet at the end of a working day. After eventually managed to insinuate himself into the Khabgah. Finally, the day dawned when he was allowed in. The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Thank you very much for reading that to us, Arundhati, and uh, we're going to hear some more readings later. Now, Aftab was born with both male and female genitalia, a hermaphrodite, and as a baby, his mother took him to a shrine because she wanted to learn how to love him. And this relates to the first of the objects that you've brought along uh, to share with us, as is uh, traditional here on the Penguin podcast, um, which relate to your writing. And I think uh, we've got a photograph of the, uh, the shrine here, and we can see a, a couple of people there praying, and indeed the booklet that you get as you go into uh, the shrine. Just, it's, it's, it's a blue and red booklet, rather, sort of slightly garish, actually, with sort of two cartoon figures on it. Explain to us who they are. The white dome that you see there, that's the Jama Masjid. It's the huge mosque in Old Delhi. And this little sh shrine is, is the shrine of Hazrat Sarmad Shahid. And it's just clamped like a limpet to the side of this big mosque. And Hazrat Sarmad was a Jewish-Armenian businessman who lived in Persia. And he fell in love with a Hindu boy called Abhechand in the Sindh and followed him to Delhi. This was at the time of the Emperor Aurangzeb. And uh, he renounced Judaism and embraced Islam. And then he renounced Islam. And Aurangzeb summons him to the Red Fort and basically says you have to prove that you're a Muslim by reciting the Kalima. And Hazrat Sarmad, he says, I can't recite the whole Kalima until I accept Allah with all my heart. I don't want to do it mechanically. And Aurangzeb sentences him to death and he's executed on the steps of the Jama Masjid. And this little shrine, it's always red and uh, where Aftab's mother takes him to pray and say, show me how to love my baby, because Hazrat Sarmad in some ways is the person who allows people to take his story and make and, it, and doesn't judge what it. they want it to be. And I actually spend a lot of time here in this, in this. little shine, such a beautiful place, you know, uh, where He's basically the, the saint of, of love, you know, even in the face of annihilation. So the little boy at the start of the book, Aftab, renames herself Anjum and moves into the Kwabga, 
a house that attracts outsiders and hijras, or trans women in particular. Can you explain the unique place that the hijra community holds in South Asian society and, and why you wanted to, to start your novel there? It's interesting because there has always been a place, albeit a marginalized place. But the thing about the Khwabga, you know, in where Anjum lives, again, it's like Hazrat Sarmad's shrine. It's, it's a universe. It's not a single gender or a single kind of person. There are all kinds of genders there. But what you actually eventually find is that nobody has a single identity. You know, that is not Anjum's only identity, that she's a hijra. Her more dangerous identity in India today is that of a Muslim, of a Shia Muslim. So when she goes to Gujarat in 2002 and gets caught up in the massacre, she gets caught up because she's a Muslim and she escapes because she's a hijra and the people who are doing all the killing feel it's unlucky to kill Hijra. You write a lot about marginalized people. In The God of Small Things, you write about the caste system in India, and you return to it once again with this book. Uh, so as well as the Hijra, there are quite a few characters in this book who are Dalits, and they are the lowest in the caste system. Now, I want to come to uh, your next object, and this is relevant to another of the main characters in the book, a Dalit who calls himself, names himself, bizarrely, Saddam Hussein, because he saw a YouTube video with Saddam Hussein in it. And he rides around Delhi on this, this white horse. And the next object is a newspaper article, and it's the most terrible story about a young uh, Dalit man, 21, who loves horses, and he's pulled off his horse and beaten to death by a group of, of higher caste men uh, because they think riding horses is only for the higher caste. So how does this relate to the writing? Did this article inspire the character of Saddam Hussein? No, Hussain? in fact, this uh, happened quite recently, much after the book came out. I felt Saddam Hussein's horse had escaped from the pages of the book and was taking people to show you a map of the things that are happening in, in this country, which are so painful, you know. Now, you describe this book as being like a city, and one of the main parts of this fictional city is a graveyard where Anjum, the Hijra, and Saddam Hussein uh, make their home. Um, and uh, Andrum calls it um, a janat, or a paradise. And uh, she builds it into a community, they grow vegetables, they, they even have a little empty swimming pool, just like rich people. And all sorts of people move in. And, and Andrum, who is terribly traumatized having been attacked by Hindu extremists, doesn't just survive in this graveyard, she thrives, doesn't she? She can't continue with her life, so she moves into uh, a graveyard where her family used to be buried, a sort of derelict graveyard where she lives like this ravaged specter, you know, between the graves for a long time. And then gradually, as she, over the years, she slowly begins to recover. And then Saddam Hussein arrives with his horse and then joins and they start the Jannat guest house 
which later turns into the Jannat guest house and funeral services. If you look at who is buried in that graveyard and what the prayers are that are said, there is the Fateha, of course, but there's also Shakespeare, there's also the Internationale in Hindi, and it's the revolution, you know, who lives, who dies, there, who is buried and who says the prayers. Now, I think this is a book in, in three acts, and for the second act, we are transported to Kashmir. And the conflict there is between the Indian government and the separatist insurgents. And it's a very complex conflict. What was your way into this particular subject matter? It's very much part of my universe because my closest friends are Kashmiris. I've been there, traveled there, uh, laughed and cried and been under house arrest and been tailed, and I know so many stories of uh, how that works. And so uh, when I started going there first, I was so shocked at the fact that it's the most densely occupied military zone in the world. There are 500,000 soldiers there. You know, traffic jams are sorted by AK-47s with their safety catches off. So one of the first things I found myself doing was to write down what I call the Kashmiri English alphabet, where you found that a military occupation just creates its own vocabulary, which is frightening, you know, all about death, disappearance, counterinsurgent, militant compensation, grenade attack, crossfire, double agent, you know, all that. I mean, one of the main characters, apart from Anjum, in the book is a, is a woman called Tilotuma. In some ways, she's very much the opposite of Anjum. Anjum is this raucous, gregarious, generous, strong woman. And Tilotuma is a steely, a, a woman who's described as a person who lives in the country of her own skin. And it's a country that issues no visas and has no consulates. And Tilotuma's lover, Musa, is a Kashmiri. And through them, and through Garson Hobart, the intelligence officer, who all knew each other when they were young, you look at Kashmir through... Well, it's almost like... I mean, there's a cinema hall uh, in Kashmir, it, which... It's three, I, I would say that you tell the story of Kashmir in almost 360 degrees, because you tell it from many different perspectives, yeah. from, from the head of intelligence, the Indian government, from the point of view of Tilo, the, the woman from, from Kerala who's in love with a, a Kashmiri uh, freedom fighter. Which brings me on, actually, to our next reading, because part of this narrative on Kashmir are the stories that Tilo gathers and comments on in a series of, of found notebooks. Uh, let's hear that next extract from the Ministry well, of Happiness. Well, Tilo peculiar way of functioning in, in the world, so she finds a notebook of hers in which she has written these really strange stories, and it's called the Reader's Digest Book of English Grammar and Comprehension for Very Young Children by S. Tilotma. And there are these little stories, one of which I'm going to read, but be before I read it, I'll explain that one of the most contentious parts of the Kashmir conflict is that 
Of course, the Kashmir Valley is a Muslim-majority valley, and there was a very small population of Hindus, all Brahmins, called Kashmiri Pandits. Basically, when the conflict began and became an armed conflict, a few of them were killed by militants, and many of them fled to refugee camps uh, outside. And so the Kashmiri Pandit issue is a very, very conflicted one. So this, uh, this little story of hers is called the Nobel Prize winner. So Manohar Mattu was a Kashmiri Pandit who stayed on in the valley even after all the other Hindus had gone. He was secretly tired of and deeply hurt by the barbs from his Muslim friends who said that all Hindus in Kashmir were actually, in one way or another, agents of the Indian occupation forces. Manohar had participated in all the anti-India protests and had shouted, Azadi, louder than everybody else. Azadi meaning freedom. But nothing seemed to help. At one point, he had even contemplated taking up arms and joining the Hizb, Hizbul Mujahideen. But eventually, he had decided against it. One day, an old school friend of his, Aziz Muhammad, an intelligence officer, visited him at home to tell him that he was worried for him. He said that he had seen Mattu's surveillance file. It suggested that he be put under watch because he displayed, quote, unquote, anti-national tendencies. When he heard the news, Mattu beamed and felt his chest swell with pride. You've given me the Nobel Prize, he said to his friend. He took Aziz Mohammed out to Cafe Arabica and bought him coffee and pastries worth rupees 500. A year later, Mattu was shot by an unknown gunman for being a kafir. So there are questions. All the stories have questions. Question one, why was Mattu shot? A, because he was a Hindu. B, because he wanted Azadi. C, because he won the Nobel Prize. D, none of the above. C, all of the above. Question two, who could the unknown gunman have been? A, an Islamist militant who thought all kafirs should be killed. B, an agent of the occupation who wanted people to think that all Islamist militants thought that all kafirs should be killed. C, neither of the above. D, someone who wanted everyone to go crazy trying to figure it out. <laughs> Now, that's part of quite a large section in the book where you write witness statements, political pamphlets, newspaper articles. It's a stylistic shift in the novel. What does this mode of writing allow you to do creatively? You know, um, this way of trying to break form was the liberation that I sought in the novel, you know, so there are so many kinds of different languages, you know, you have Urdu poetry, you have legal affidavits, you have newspaper advertisements, you have people's pamphlets and views and news, and you have uh, the book of uh, Reader's Digest, book of grammar and comprehension, and in this way, somehow you can torpedo the idea that there has to be some kind of 
stylistic integrity, which gives a false sense of uh, neatness in a world that is not neat to me. You know, it, 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 I, I wanted it to break, and, I want, and to me, The God of Small Things, in a way, is a book about a family with a broken heart at its center, and this is a book about broken hearts who bring these shattered pieces into a graveyard and make a very imperfect mended heart. I want to come back to the character of Tilo, because it seems to me there is a lot of you in Tilo. She's uh, from Kerala. She's born um, into the Syrian Christian uh, community there. Her mother runs a school, as did yours in Kerala. Uh, she studied architecture, as did you. She goes to Kashmir. How much did you draw on, on, on yourself, the character of Tilo? When I was thinking of her, of course, I mean, there are those external things and some others that may be very close to me, but I was thinking of her as the sister of Estepan and Rahel from The God of Small Things had Amu and Velita actually, you know, had a baby together. She's the younger sister of the twins from The God of Small Things, just notionally in my head. So she's not me, but I know her really well. <laughs> I think there's quite a lot of you, but anyway. <laughs> Maybe. Violence and, and the threat of violence pervades this novel. And at one point, you use the metaphor of an egg yolk to describe it, the, the difficulty of trying to prevent something so easily broken from, from spilling out. And in one of her notebooks, Tilo talks about wanting to write a story about the conflict in Kashmir, but finding that there's just too much blood for it to be a, a, a sophisticated story, she said. Did the bloodiness of the Kashmir conflict make it difficult to write? There was a time when literature was full of blood. I mean, Shakespeare's full of blood, isn't it? But there is, uh, there is now a sort of gentrification which I find a little disturbing, you know, which is why people ask me or, or, or introduce me as a writer activist, because I must have an extra profession in order to be political, because writers are some kind of stuffed toys who entertain people, and, and you know, uh, you're expected to be a little apologetic about being political, maybe in a novel, but for me, writing a novel, it, you have to try to do everything. You may fail, but you have to try to do everything. You have to write about blood, about war, about sex, about intimacy, about childhood, with the same feeling, you know? Now, the final third of the book begins by uh, recounting the story of a little girl in Kashmir, Miss Jabin. She likes to be called Miss Jabin. And she is killed with her mother by stray gunfire during a protest. And this moves us on to your next two objects, which are a ferun and a shroud. Can you describe them for us? I mean, tell us, first of all, what a ferun is. A ferun is a very, uh, very typically Kashmiri garment. Everyone wears a ferun. So that's Miss Jubin's ferun, which is described as being as tiny as a tea cozy. It's like a red velvet dress with gold embroidery around the edges. Yeah, so that's the dress. And that's a coffin, which is a shroud in which, of course, she was wrapped, but a, a shroud which 
many Kashmiris already have in their homes in anticipation of the fact that they can get killed at any moment. You know, mothers don't know when their children will come home and so on. And of course, Ms. Jabin is an innocent bystander in this war. Does she represent for you all of those who have lost their lives in that conflict? I think in this conflict, the trouble is that people don't even think that there are such things as innocent bystanders, you know? It's a conflict that has become toxic and crazy. So, Ms. Jubin is Musa's daughter. She is the daughter of Tilo's lover, lover who is a, a Kashmiri rebel. And there is another Ms. Jubin, Ms. Jubin uh, II. And I should say that motherhood is, is quite a strong theme in this novel. Andrew mothers a small child who's not her own, so does Tilo. And that brings us uh, to the next reading from the novel, in which Tilo has just had a party for her found baby, Miss Jabin II. In a way, the book started for me because I, I was in this place in Delhi called Jantar Mantar, where a lot of the protest movements come through, and I, I would spend nights there, and suddenly this little baby, abandoned baby, appeared, and none of the wise political movements knew what to do with it, and it really made me think. And Tilotama, of course, picks up that baby and makes off with it. So then brings her to this little room where she lives as a tenant to Garson Hobart. The baby whose birthday and baptism ceremonies had been simultaneously celebrated and successfully concluded was fast asleep. Her kidnapper, who went by the name of S. Tilotama, was awake and concentrating. She could hear her hair growing. It sounded like something crumbling, a burnt thing crumbling. Coal, toast, moths crisped on a light bulb. She remembered reading somewhere that even after people died, their hair and nails kept growing, like starlight traveling through the universe long after the stars themselves had died. Like cities, fizzy, effervescent, simulating the illusion of life while the planet they had plundered died around them. She thought of the city at night, of cities at night, discarded constellations of old stars fallen from the sky, rearranged on earth in patterns and pathways and towers, invaded by weevils that have learned to walk upright. A weevil philosopher with a grave manner and a sharp moustache was teaching a class, reading aloud from a book. Admiring young weevils strained to catch each word that spilled from his wise weevil lips. Nietzsche believed that if pity was to become the core of ethics, misery would become contagious and happiness an object of suspicion. The youngsters scratched away on their little notepads. Schopenhauer, on the other hand, believed that pity is and ought to be the supreme weevil virtue. But long before them, Socrates asked the key question, why should we be moral? He had lost a leg in weevil World War IV, this professor, and carried a cane. His remaining five legs were in excellent condition. Airbrush graffiti sprayed on the back wall of his classroom said, 
Evil weevils always make the cut. Other creatures crowded into the already crowded classroom. An alligator with a human skin purse. A grasshopper with good intentions. A fish on a fast. A fox with a flag. A maggot with a manifesto. A neocon newt. An icon iguana. A communist cow. An owl with an alternative. A lizard on TV. Hello and welcome. You're watching Lizard News at 9. There's been a blizzard on Lizard Island. The baby was the beginning of something. This much the kidnapper knew. Her bones had whispered this to her that night. The said night, the concerned night, the aforementioned night, the night hereinafter referred to as the night, when she made her move on the pavement. And her bones were nothing if not reliable informants. The baby was Miss Jubin returned. Returned, that is, not to her. Miss Jubin the first was never hers, but to the world. Miss Jubin the second, when she was grown to be a lady, would settle the accounts and square the books. Miss Jubin would turn the tide. There was hope yet for the evil weevil world. Tilo describes herself as the baby's kidnapper because that is the language of, of the authorities. But the other characters acknowledge her as the baby's saviour because you know, abandoned babies who end up in state care in India don't fare well. And that brings us to the last object that you brought along to share with the listeners. And it's a photo of a police notice for an abandoned baby. Perhaps you could describe and read it for us and tell us why you've brought this. This is nothing remarkable, which is why it's remarkable. You know, it's just a police notice that appears in the newspaper, and there is one such notice in the book. It just says, abandoned newborn baby. Name unknown, father's name unknown, address unknown, age newborn, wearing no clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and this actually, again, is something that... Uh, and this is very common, is it? It's very common. I mean, this, this is dated 2015, when I was writing as much before that, you know? So it's, yeah, it's very, very common. I just want to come back to one of Tilo's poems towards uh, the end of the book, because I think it sums up how you encompass a country as vast and as diverse as India, which is how to tell a shattered story by slowly becoming everybody. No, by slowly becoming everything. Is that a summary of what you were trying to do with the Ministry of Utmost Happiness? The idea was not to try and encompass, because you can't encompass, you know, but to break down, you know. So we haven't, of course, had the time to talk about the fact that the borders between people, genders and castes and communities and religions and state and non-state, but there's also a lot of animals uh, in the book, you know, animals in the cities. There's the border between life and death, which is blurred because now everyone's living in the graveyard and communing with 
you know, people who have come and gone, and there are the battered angels who illegally hold open a crack for people to come and go from other worlds. So the idea of slowly becoming everything is just to let go, in a way, of the ego of this beautiful, lyrical voice that could tell a beautiful, lyrical story and just break it, you know, and be able to be, yeah, lyrical sometimes, but also police notice, also legal, also body, also vulgar, also just to try not to be neat. Well, I think it's a gorgeous book, a sort of colourful Dickensian panorama of characters. And uh, I hope that we don't have to wait another 20 years for the next Arundhati Roy novel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Thank you. and goodbye. Thank you. Deborah Levy returns to the subject of her life in letters. The cost of living reveals a writer in constant motion, considering what it is to be alive with meaning and fulfilment. He had taken a risk when he invited her to join him at his table. After all, she came with a whole life and libido of her own. It had not occurred to him that she might not consider herself to be the minor character and him the major character. In this sense, she had unsettled a boundary collapsed a social hierarchy, broken with the usual rituals. This perfectly crafted snapshot of a woman in the process of transformation is as distinctive, wide-ranging and original as Levy's acclaimed novels and is now available to download from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.